my blessings, all 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 my blessings. I need my blessings every penny, daily counting every single one I'm seeing plenty. Level up and watch that beat and turn it to a Welcome to the Michael Welch Podcast. We've got the NBA playoffs kicking off. Everyone has now got a game in. We, of course, started with the second year of the play-in games, and it was not disappointing. It was technically the third year that we had some kind of extracurricular play-in tournament with the bubble ball in 2020 being the first time due to the difference in games uh, where we had extra teams in the mix. But as far as the current format of play-in, this was the year two, where we had the 7-8 seed with the winner making it in as the 7th seed, the 9-10 game as an elimination game, and the loser of the 7-8 playing the winner of the 9-10 to lock in the 8th seed in each conference. In the East, to no one's surprise, the Nets knocked off the Cavaliers 115-108 to make the 7th seed and play against the Boston Celtics in the first round. No surprise there with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant leading the way. Irving had 34 points, 12 assists against the Cleveland Cavaliers. And the Cavs had to match up against the Atlanta Hawks in order to um, make the final spot. Now, Cavs, having two shots at the eight seed, still could not pull it through. The Atlanta Hawks completely decimated the Hornets 132-103 to in the 9-10 game. John Collins wasn't even healthy enough to play for Atlanta, who went on a 42-24 run in the third to tuck the game away. It got a little contentious late as Miles Bridges was ejected with a double technical. But the Hornets will be going into the offseason, continuing to try to build with their young pieces, find a big center in the paint, work on the defensive side of the ball as they finish the season top 10 in offensive efficiency and bottom 10 in defensive efficiency. So Miles Bridges will be in the running for uh, most improved player. Lomelo Ball has obviously been a star and they have a lot of great young pieces to build around moving forward. Now the Atlanta Hawks grabbed two wins here and two wins that they had to have in order to make the playoffs. They finished 12-5 and five down the stretch of the regular season in order to ensure that they had a play-in opportunity available. And the Cleveland Cavaliers, who only needed to win one of two to make it in, couldn't win either. So a tough end to the season for the Cleveland Cavaliers. They will go into the offseason trying to evaluate what to do with Colin Sexton, who's lost the beginning of the season. Of course, Colin Sexton and Darius Garland were drafted back-to-back. Dennis Garland has improved tremendously and is going to be the leader for this team moving forward. He is, this is his, was his third season in the league, and he has just exploded uh, the past couple of years. Uh, this year he averaged 21 points per game, three boards, eight assists. He shot 46, 38, and 89 from the field, three and free throw lines. And he's going to be, along with Evan Mobley, the rookie, the two leaders of the squad. And we'll see what pieces they work with moving forward to build around them. But the Hawks win 107-101 over the Cavs to take the eighth spot in the East. Behind 38 points from Trey Young, most of which came in the second quarter in a very, very close game. Now, the West was a little bit more shocking. 
The Timberwolves and the Pelicans played in the 7-8 game with the Spurs-Pelicans in the 9-10 game. We fully expected the Clippers to somehow make it in with Paul George returning and Kawhi Leonard, one of the players that we thought coming off injury, hasn't played all season, who might make an appearance in the playoffs uh, should they make it, much like Zion, much like Jamal Murray, much like several other players. Now, the Timberwolves won 109 to 104 in the first play in game, forcing the Clippers to win against the Pelicans, winners against the Spurs, 113 to 103. Now, the Timberwolves looked excellent, and they looked excellent as well in their game one matchup against Memphis. No one thought that they would have any chance here, given very little credence to their top stars. But D'Angelo Russell dropped 29 points, five boards, six assists in that game, and they looked excellent. The Clippers really struggled without Paul George on the floor, despite his 34 points, seven rebounds, and five assists. They struggled. The Timberwolves outscored them 31-20 to in that fourth quarter. Cat fouled out late, and Anthony Edwards was able to pick up and win the game for him. Now, the Clippers had one more shot there against the Pels, who knocked off the Spurs. We have questions of their own heading into the offseason. But the Pelicans, who have been on a surge after winning one of their first 13 games, I do believe, earlier in the season, Willie Green, first-year head coach, former player, has done a great job with that squad, bringing that team along. Zion William dunk videos have been going around but he's not expected to make an appearance in the playoffs. But C.J. McCollum, midseason trade, dropped 32 points. Brandon Ingram, 27. Valachunas had 22 and 14 boards. And this team did an excellent job in just pushing the Spurs down and out of the way. That's just a young group. And one of their questions is, of course, will Popovich return to coach this young squad heading into next season? But at 34 and 48, another season out of the playoffs for the Spurs and questions moving ahead. But they do have a nice young core heading into the future. So it was Pelicans and Clippers for the final spot. And it was a stunning announcement when Paul George was entered into COVID protocols prior to the game, just a few hours ahead of time. And not much was expected from the Clippers after that. Again, a great supporting cast here, but when you look at it, you say, hey, this team's waiting for two superstars like Paul George and Kawhi Leonard to really push this team ahead. And again, they're playing as a shell of a team, great supporting pieces, but just couldn't get it done. They lose 105 to 101 and another excellent game. These games are great all the way through. And Brandon Ingram dropped 30 points. McCollum had 19. Pell shot almost 49% from the field. Only 27% from three, but the Clippers, 41% and 25% from the field and from three. Reggie Jackson dropped 27 points. Morris Sr. dropped 27 points. That's part of the problem. Those two guys should not be scoring 54 of your team's 101 points and expected to make the playoffs. So in a stunning turn of events, the New Orleans Pelicans at 36 and 46 stole the eighth spot and the final spot in the Eastern Conference playoffs, and they will have to figure out what they're going to do moving into next season with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Both are on the books for next season still with a combined $90 million. They'll take up about 45% of the Clippers' cap space, 
and both have player options for the following season, the 2024-25 season after that. So Ballmer, Steve Ballmer, will have to decide how he's going to build the roster around this team next season with the health in mind of these two players to kind of make one last push to keep them together and to make a run with this squad. Well, we had a lot of great performances as individual players during a lot of the game ones on Saturday and Sunday. That doesn't mean we had a lot of great games. And it opened up with the 4-5 matchup out of the West, the Dallas Mavericks and the Utah Jazz. The Jazz winning 99-93. to But we knew this was going to be boring as hell to watch. No, Luka Doncic, he is out with a horrible calf injury suffered at the very end of the regular season, these two games, these two teams are both last in the league uh, in pace of play. Dallas is dead last. Utah is still uh, bottom 10. And Utah is actually top 10 in offensive and defensive efficiency. So without Luka on the floor, this should have been a runaway for the Utah Jazz, even though they were playing in Dallas. And this game was close all the way until the end. Donovan Mitchell had only two points at the half, although they finished on a 13-2 run over the final three and a half minutes of the first half to take the lead that they never relinquished in the second. Gobert only had one shot attempt the entire game, but they managed to pull it out in the end with a Rice O'Neal 3 to push it from a one-point game with two minutes left to a four-point lead that then uh, Dallas was not able to push through. Now Donovan Mitchell did finally grab a hold in the second half. He finished with 32 points on 10 of 29 shooting, 10 of 29 shooting. And he added six assists and six boards as well. As far as the plus minus, he did finish plus 10. So that's something, I guess. Brognatovich did finish 11 of 20 with 26 points. He was the second leading scorer. Clarkston off the bench had 10 points to contribute as well, and he'll be one of the key rotation players, of course, for the Utah Jazz. But Gobert, 0 for 1 on the hardwood, and he did grab in 17 rebounds. But man, did he have a rough time out there. Five points from the free throw line on 5 of 6 from free throw shooting. For the Mavericks, they relied on Mr. Brunson, who will get a contract extension. They'll See if they can keep him on the roster. 41 minutes played for him, 44 for Finney Smith, and 44 for Reggie Bullock. Those three led in minutes outside of Donovan Mitchell out of all players that played. Brunson had 24 points, seven boards, five assists. Spencer Dimwini, who started in place of Luka, was six for 15 from the field, 22 points, eight assists. Bullock was three for eight from three. Altogether, the Mavericks shot 38% from the field, 28% from three, while the Jazz shot 43 and 31. So again, slow game, not a lot of shots. Jazz only took 22 three-pointers, while the Mavericks took 32 three-pointers, which is low for the Jazz, and just kind of a slog of a game. Not a terrible, effective Rudy Gobert on the offensive end. Donovan Mitchell took a while to get going. The referees at the time didn't know what the hell was going on. There's a possession in the second half 
where there was maybe an out-of-bounds play that wasn't ruled correctly, and then one referee allowed the ball to be inbounded with six Utah Jazz players on the floor, and it just caused a whole mess of activity. And although the game was close at the end, again, no Luka Doncic, and the long view for the series is that the Jazz are probably just going to prevail because he's not out there. He's not expected for Game 2, which is tonight, April 18th. And, you know, if the Jazz go up 2-0 on the road and then take it back to their place, it's just going to be tough. Even Luka coming back, that's known to be a difficult injury to recover from right away. No tear, no rip, just some kind of, of ailment there. And it'll be tough for the Jazz to recover without him. And the Utah Jazz, despite all their issues, should really manage to plow through this round. So though 99-93 was one of the closer games, it was certainly not one of the best games to tip off the playoffs with. It was not a great watch. You know what was exciting to watch? The 2-7 matchup in the West, the Minnesota Timberwolves, and the host, the Memphis Grizzlies. Yes, John Martin was healthy, ready to play, fired up. And of course, the frisky T-Wolves who won the play-in game to make it into the tournament, or the playoffs in this case, out of the play-in tournament, into the actual playoffs, what the hell ever. These teams were first and fourth in pace of play, Minnesota being the first, Grizzlies being the fourth, so we knew it was going to be a quick-paced game. They're also first and third, Minnesota and Memphis, respectively, and turnovers forced. So we're playing fast. We've got a lot of star power. Should be a lot of turnovers. And this game was hot, hot from all over. And this should be one of the best series to watch in the first round. Timberwolves not given a lot of credit in the main media, but there is a lot of star power here. D'Angelo Russell, who was given a lot of credit earlier on in the season for the defense, but it's fallen on to Patrick Beverly, the veteran who's kind of keyed on the perimeter defense and what he's been able to do. Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards, of course, the cat and the ant, leading this team to superstars. Anthony Edwards, one of several young guys making his first playoff appearance himself, a time putting up 36 points on 12 of 23 shooting. That's over 50% for those of you counting at home. And six assists, a couple blocks. Excellent job for that young guy as he led the squad. Carl Anthony Towns had 29 points, 13 rebounds on 11 of 18 shooting. We had foul trouble all over the place in this game. Pat Bev had 10. Russell had 10 points, not fouls, 10 points. And uh, McDaniels, Jalen McDaniels, excellent job. Kind of lost as a wing player on the bench sometimes. Uh, certainly not taking that at value uh, off the off the bench in these big situations. But he had the largest plus out of the plus minus evaluation system of all these players. 15 points, hit two three-pointers off the bench, five of six shooting, and had seven rebounds in 25 minutes. Was a great contributor that probably should have been taken to evaluation here. Haven't heard much about him as far as the postseason matchups. And Malik Beasley dropped 23 points on four of 10 from three and had 14 shot attempts, third behind Edwards and Towns as far as shooting attempts. So excellent for him, and this was just a hot game. Of course, on the other side for the Memphis Grizzlies, Jaron Jackson Jr., John Morant, and a whole fleet of guys that have been given respect all season for maintaining an excellent record 
when John Morant is not on the floor. But they were down for a good chunk of this game. John Morant finished with 32 points, 8 assists on 8 of 18 shooting. He also lived at the free throw line, hit 16 of his 20 free throw attempts. They had 43 free throw attempts against 27 for the Timberwolves, the Grizzlies did. Desmond Bain at 17, Dylan Brooks at 24, Jaron Jackson Jr. had 7 blocks and 12 points. Where Utah and the Mavericks were fittingly slow, this team, this was of course uh, fire right off the bat. So, John Morant had 15 of the first 30 points for the Grizzlies before heading to the bench towards the end of the first quarter. Again, lots of early, air quotes, foul trouble early that caused some some benchings for Minnesota Timberwolves players. No one fouled out of this game in the end. 41 points allowed by the Grizzlies in the first quarter, most in the first quarter of the season. Jaron Jackson Jr. had two or three blocks really early and was quite an early disruptor. But again, he got in foul trouble as well throughout this game as it continued. Minnesota has given up more free throws than any team this season, so perhaps the 43 shouldn't have been a surprise, especially coupled with John Morant's aggressiveness in attacking in the paint, where he averages 16.6 points per game that leads the league. Now, he did lose sound early in the first quarter, so he did have Jalen Rose and Stephen A. and Greenberg on the call for a good chunk of that first quarter. And the video was flickering too. So Memphis always talks about how they're disrespected, and they certainly had that on a national scale when the playoff game was disrupted with the audio and video kind of flickering and going off for a while there. But Memphis clearly struggled in this game. Again, top players going at each other. Cat had a great dunk over uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. Lots of John Morant dunks. But Minnesota led for a good chunk of this game. Great, great shots by uh, Anthony Edwards. But this was, Minnesota can definitely hang, and Minnesota can definitely cause a lot of problems. and has more offensive producers than Memphis does, with John Morant being the main guy for Memphis. And both Carl Anthony Towns, who again could get in foul trouble and, you know, stand aside in a lot of these games due to that, sitting on the bench, and Anthony Edwards as well for the Minnesota Timberwolves. We had a 65-62 to 62 halftime score with the Wolves up, and it looking like it would be an intense second half with more blocks, more fouls, more intense play, and more up and down, more big shots. And we got more of that, but the Timberwolves won this 130-117. to It really just pulled away in the end. But this is going to be the most exciting series outside of Boston and New Jersey going forward. Brooklyn, excuse me, Freudian slip. With the power of Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns for the Minnesota Timberwolves, and the ability to run the floor and play defense as well, Patrick Beverly, D'Angelo Russell only shot two for 11, but he'll be able to hopefully contribute in some of these games as well. They're able to play both ways. Vanderbilt's been a great defenders well throughout the year and if they can get contributions from Beasley as well off the bench and McDaniels he was great he's fun to watch as well they can do a lot of different things now they get in the foul trouble that'll be an issue 
keep sending the Grizzlies to the free throw line, that'll be a problem. Grizzlies only shot 74% from the free throw line, but they did shoot 45% from the field, almost 26% from three. Those numbers need to come up. The Timberwolves shot 50, 39, and 89. So top ceiling numbers from what you'll see for that. About a perfect performance there on that side, but they still can run with the Grizzlies. For the Grizzlies, Triple J's, Jaron Jackson Jr., led the NBA in blocks and is also the only player to have, I think, 103 pointers in a season. Point being, he's a threat offensively on the perimeter and a true rim protector on the interior defensively and just a very unique skill set. He didn't hit a single three this game, 0 for 5, 4 for 13 from the field, pushed a uh, Timberwolves player when Carl Anthony Towns dunked on him in the second half and was frustrated, had five fouls, so did sit some time on the bench because they didn't want him to foul out, but he can still be very productive. He was one of four of the starters that finished with a negative plus minus. So we will see it swing back the other way for many more games in this series. Hopefully it'll go seven. This team really needs to be more offensive, I think, around John Morant because they kind of step aside when he's on the on the court. So even when he's missed games this season and they've won a lot of games, it still very much revolves around him when he's on the court. And they need to switch that up a bit. Steven Adams did not look good in this game, didn't attempt a shot, didn't score any points, was not helpful on the defensive end. He might get played off the floor. I think he will get played off the floor. He wasn't great against Carl Anthony Towns on the defensive end. That's going to be problematic for the Grizzlies. But I'm very excited for this particular series going forward. I think this is my second favorite series. Next game is Tuesday at 8.30 on NBA TV. Also on Saturday, the 4-5 in the East, the Toronto Raptors and the Philadelphia 76ers. The Sixers mashed the Raptors 131 to 111. They shot 51, 50, and 85 from the floor three and free throw line. Joel Embiid didn't even play a top level game. He was only five for 15 shooting, 19 points and 15 rebounds. The Sixers only turned the ball over four times. The Raptors only turned it over eight and shot 48, 40, and 82 from the lines and the floor. So excellent numbers all the way around for both teams. But the Raptors don't have the size to battle with the 76ers. And Scotty Barnes, the rookie out of Florida State, who might have the best chance to really do something different for the Raptors on both sides of the ball, mostly the defensive end, was hurt when Embiid rolled up on him, and he might be out, period, for the games going forward. He still managed 32 minutes, 4-6 shooting, 15 points, 10 boards, 8 assists, and that's the kind of numbers you're looking at for a guy like that. But that's going to be a problem if he's out. Van Fleet, 7-12 from the field. He really needs to be shooting the ball more. Only 18 points. That's a rough go. 24 for Siakam, 9 of 18 from the field. Anobly had 20 points, 9 of 15. Seems like a lot of shooting for him. Gary Trent, only 2 for 11 with 9 points. For the 76ers, Harden may be shooting too much. 6 of 17 from the field for 22 points and 14 assists. But this was Maxi's day. 
another young guy having a great performance, much like Carl Anthony Towns and Jordan Poole for the Warriors as well. He dropped 38 points on 14 of 21 shooting, chipped in four rebounds, two assists, zero turnovers as well. And he was the top guy for the 76ers. And man, you know, he just couldn't be, <laughs> couldn't be stopped out there. So the 76ers looking great. Tobias Harris, a surprise resurgence for him. 9 of 14 shooting, 3 out of 5 from the three-point line, 26 points, 6 boards, 6 assists as well. Although we didn't say, see a peak Van Fleet night for the Raptors or a peak Embiid night for the 76ers. Both will certainly have their opportunities moving forward, but it was still a great shooting night for both squads. Towards the ceiling of what you'll see as far as shooting performances for both those teams, and I'm not sure how the Raptors will stop the 76ers moving forward, especially with the injury to Scotty Barnes. Matisse Thibault will not be able to play in games three or four in Toronto due to vaccination status. I believe he didn't receive the booster, but I'm not, not entirely certain what the status is on that. So we'll see. Raptors can certainly still win some games, but I'm not sure how they're going to stop Embiid once he gets going. You know, if Maxi has an off night, we'll see. Not sure about the 76ers bench, but I just don't know that the Raptors can actually stop a peak Joel Embiid four out of the next six games. Now, the final game of Saturday was the Warriors hammering the Nuggets 123 to 107. And the big story of this was Jordan Poole dropping 30 freaking points. A huge night for him in his playoff debut. The Warriors have not been in the playoffs now for three seasons. Of course, last year they bottomed out. And the year before that, they lost in the debut play-in in the bubble. So, 123-107, what went wrong here? Well, for starters, the Nuggets don't have anyone outside of Mr. Jokic that you could really trust to do a whole lot. He finished with 25 points, 10 rebounds, 6 assists, a very modest number, and had the biggest minus in the plus-minus metric out of anyone on either side of the ball. He was 12 for 25 from the field, 0 for 4 from 3. Will Barton tripped, uh, chipped in 24 points on 10 of 18 shooting, and no one else attempted more than 10 shots on the game for the squad. And no one else had more than 10 points. So where is the offense coming from with Jamal Murray out? With Michael Porter Jr. out? That's still a question mark. Bones Highland, the young man of VCU with an awesome first name, Bones. He was 4 for 10 off the bench with 10 points, 2 for 7 from 3. He was thought to maybe be a, a contributor as part of this run, but he was not uh, much of a contributor. Aaron Gordon, 3 for 10, 8 points. Morris, 4 for 9 for 10. Green, 7 points, 2 for 3. Still 46% from the field, but this team's really going to struggle. Now, the Golden State Warriors, 52%. 45%, 72%, field three, free throw line. Mr. Poole was 9 for 13 from the field, 5 for 7 from three, at seven of his eight free throws, dropped 30 points, and that made up for Steph Curry, who interestingly enough came off the bench, 
played only 22 minutes, struggled to find his shot. He was 5 for 13 from the field, 16 points, 4 assists, 3 rebounds, a steal. And didn't look like himself. Strangely enough, that was not a great Steph Curry performance. Clay Thompson was 7-15 with 19 points. But will he really be able to produce when there's more pressure? Not sure. He still doesn't look like himself, and he may never look like, air quotes, himself again from three seasons ago. So Looney only logged 13 minutes. It looks like the death lineup that they're referring to here, as they did with Kevin Durant years back, swapping out Durant for Poole in this case, Clay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, Seth Curry. They only played five minutes together in this game, but outscored the Nuggets by 14. Of course, they outscored the Nuggets by 16 on the night, so I'm not sure that's truly indicative of a whole lot. But that could be very dangerous if Poole continues to shoot like an elite shooter moving forward. It'll be interesting to see kind of in the second round what the tight seven or eight guys looks like moving forward. So we had about nine, ten guys log at least double-digit minutes the other night. Green, Wiggins, Clay, Poole, Curry, obviously. We'll have Peyton be a part of that rotation. Will Iguodala be a part of it? Kaminga only logged four minutes. Porter Jr. will presumably be part of the rotation. So we'll see what happens when Steve Kerr tightens up that rotation moving forward, whether it's in this series, if the Nuggets really start to to pull even here, or if it's in the second round. But this is one of the few teams coming in that we weren't sure what the rotation was going to be. The guys contributing off the bench, uh, not due to injury, but simply trying to combine guys coming back from injury, young pieces coming in, old pieces, if you will, from Last year's kind of tank team, but kind of seeing where all these contributors fit in for a playoff run as the Warriors have, again, brought in a lot of different pieces since they were in the playoffs several years back. So this is one of the few teams that we don't know what the rotation was going to look like coming into the playoffs here, other than the teams that had some injuries and were kind going to have to maybe figure a couple guys out here and there moving forward. Now, Sunday brought us a dumpster fire game, a couple meh games, and an all-timer. So we started with the Atlanta Hawks and the Miami Heat, the 8-1 matchup, and the Heat disappeared. Trey Young. 115-91 was the final. Trey Young was 1 of 18 from the field for 8 points. They completely disappeared him. He was gone. The defense was swarming. Everyone had a chance to switch on to him, get in his face. He was 0 for 7 from 3, hit one two-pointer and six free throws, and played 28 minutes as they were eviscerated by the Miami Heat. 38-27-85 from the field three and free throw lines were the Atlanta Hawks. The leading scorer was Gallinari, who had 17 points. Six of them came from the free throw line. Herter had 14 points. 
this was a game that I didn't watch a whole lot of, to be honest with you. Miami Heat, we had Butler with 21. P.J. Tucker had 16 points, 6 of 8 from the field. He had all four of his three-pointers. He will probably not have another night quite like that. But if he's shooting well, that's excellent. The main hero here is actually not Tyler Hero. It is his counterpart, Denard Robinson. Not Denard Robinson. That's the former Michigan quarterback. We are talking about Duncan Robinson, the former Michigan shooting guard. 27 points, 8 of 9 from 3, 9 of 10 from the field. And he just smoked the Atlanta Hawks. He pulled a Trey Young on the Hawks. They shot 47% as a team from three. But eight of their 18 makes were from Mr. Robinson. Tyler Hero was only three for 13 from the field, 0 for 4 from three for six points. That is troublesome. He is one of their main offensive threats. But as long as one of them is hitting and they make Trey Young disappear, this will be a quick, short, easy series which is unfortunate for the Hawks considering how hard they had to fight to win through the rest of the regular season and win a good chunk of their games just to get over 500 and make the play-in tournament and then win two games to get to this point. But they will not beat the Miami Heat. This is, this is one series that is not going to go very far. The Atlanta Hawks are in a position where Trey Young's their main offensive threat. DeAndre Hunter's their main defensive perimeter player the way he does all right in the post as well. And this team's going to have to find out with a lot of, not middling players, but a lot of young pieces, what they're going to do moving forward in the offseason, how they're going to upgrade this roster. John Collins did play 21 minutes. He did miss some time earlier. 10 points, 4 of 6 from the field. But sheesh. Uh, they, of course, have Kevin Knox. Of course, the former Nick. I always forget that when I see him out there. Trey Young is the kind of elite shooter that will still put up points in at least a game this this round, if it only goes four. But, man, it's, it's going to be a tough goal for the Hawks generating offense. They can certainly do it. Uh, Miami's not an offensive juggernaut themselves. But, man, if they're going to stifle the Hawks like this, they're going to have some real, real problems moving forward. The second game of the afternoon was the 2-7 matchup in the East, the Brooklyn Nets and the Boston Celtics, the number one watch this round. And I got to admit, I watched the first half, and I still have to watch the second half on DVR. I watched pieces here and there, and apparently I missed an all-timer, so I still have to catch pieces of that. However, first quarter, 18 fouls, the most in a first quarter this NBA season. I certainly didn't miss that. I caught all the free throws and all the hitting and all the bumps and the bruises, and that was quite a first half. Andre Drummond was engaged early from the Nets and eventually not played in the second, you know, towards the end of the second half, as we see with a lot of these bigs as all teams move towards smaller lineups. He ended up logging only 17 minutes. Irving didn't miss in the first half, including a buzzer beater at the end of the first half. He was 9 for 9, I believe. He finished 12 for 20, including six threes, and finished with 39 points. Six assists, five boards, four steals to go along with that. Kevin Durant, a rougher day, 9 for 24, 1 for 5 from 3, 23 points, and actually a negative plus minus. 
a lot more clocks. Claxton in the, in the second half, 13 points and six of eight shooting, eight rebounds. And Gordon Drogic, who has not looked great at all and way too old, 14 points and six of 11 shooting. Not sure how that will continue. Uh, the rotation was the starting group, Irving, Curry, Durant, Bruce Brown, Andre Drummond, and then Claxton, Drogic, and a few minutes of Patty Mills off the bench. So we'll see if they continue with that. No Blake Griffin, no Aldridge. So we'll see, you know, what kind of happens with that going forward. 42 minutes for Irving, 41 for Kevin Durant. 53% from the field, 45% from three. The Celtics shot 47 and 36. So lower percentages. And they still came away with a 115 to 114 victory here. Jalen Brown, 9 of 19 for 23 points. Marcus Smart had 20 points and 8 of 17 shooting. He hit four three-pointers. Horford had 20 points and 15 boards. Tatum had 31 points and 9 of 18 shooting. Grant Williams, former two-time SEC Player of the Year out of Tennessee, 7 points off the bench, as well as White acquired in a mid-season trade from the Spurs at 7 points as well. Pritchard got a few minutes. We might see more of him moving forward. But really a, a close rotation there, basically seven guys for the Celtics for the number one defensive efficient team in the NBA. And it was Jason Tatum on a pass from Marcus Smart at the buzzer to lay it up. And it went at 115 to 114 in just an excellent game. And again, I, I'll have to go back and watch the full extent of the second half as I was only able to catch peaksies here and there. But I wanted to hit the highlights here. This is the biggest first round series. And this is something you expect to see in the second round. You know, Dallas, Utah is, is a big series, but with Luca out, that throws a lot of things in doubt. And neither team is seriously considered as a real championship contender. Anyways, Denver without Jamal Murray is not really considered a serious contender. And they battle against Golden State. That's another, you know, supposed to be big series. And the Warriors, possible that they can make a run towards a championship, especially because we still, still haven't seen everyone healthy with Draymond Green, Seth Curry, Clay Thompson. But that might not happen. But the ceiling is still there, especially with Jordan Poole stepping up. Size may be a problem there. But with this particular series, both teams... These are two of maybe the top four or five teams in the NBA right now, along with the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks. And maybe depending how you feel on the heat, I would put them below these two squads, but these two are very much in the running for the championship this season. So this is huge. Now, the Celtics held the rebounding edge 43-29. to They held the offensive rebound edge by far 14-5. to Turnovers are about the same. A better game could have been had on the shooting end from Kevin Durant. They also have to exert a lot of energy on the defensive end as far as Kevin Durant goes. Because Kyrie Irving and Seth Curry are not going to be excellent perimeter defenders. And Andre Drummond is going to get played off the floor and a lot of 
situations, especially in this series. So we're going to see higher scoring games, presumably, or higher shooting percentages, 40% from the field, 30%, 6% from the three-point line, as we did on Sunday. And there are scores on the Celtics. Tatum, Brown, Smart was hitting shots. And Batman should not be taking nine three-point attempts ever again, which led the team, by the way. Tatum only had seven three-point attempts. But this is going to be a very tough series for the Nets. If they can't find some way to slow down the Celtics and make sure not to blow all their energy on the offensive end trying to score against this defense. Now, Robert Williams... Center for the Celtics, who got his meniscus cleaned up in the last few weeks, is expected to hopefully return by the second round should they advance. So the Nets will avoid his return, presumably, and they should be very, very thankful if that is the case. But this is the number one series to watch. If you watch anything, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, Jason Tatum, will receive MVP votes, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, who could win Defensive Player of the Year, Al Horford, who was paid to leave the Oklahoma City Thunder roster last season to just go away for a little bit because they didn't want him to receive playing time over their young pieces. So they told him to go hang out at home before trading him back to the Celtics here to contribute with his original squad here. And they're, they're great young pieces here. Bruce Brown, originally drafted by the Pistons, has been a great asset to the, the Brooklyn Nets as well. Seth Curry, a great shooter. And uh, we'll see what happens with this series. But this is much-watched television, I think, along with Memphis and Minnesota. The 3-6 matchup in the East between the Bulls and the Bucks was a bit of a slog. The Bucks led 34-21 at the end of the first quarter, and these teams combined for 34 points in the fourth quarter. It was horrific. It was horrific. The Bucks did pull out 93-86. Even if the Bulls had managed to win in Milwaukee, it's still the Bucks. And they fall asleep at the wheel a little bit sometimes, but we love them anyways. Giannis Atamakumbo had 27 points, 16 boards, 3 assists. He played 34 minutes, which was actually third on the team in minutes played. He had 5 fouls. He won't be as inefficient as he was during this game. The Bucks only shot 10 of 38 from 3. So they were not terribly efficient there. The Bulls shot even worse. 7 of 37, 18%. Uh, these teams are both just dumpster fires. The Bucks, 40% from the field overall. Brooke Lopez is back, 18 points, 7 for 14. Wes Matthews at 6. Chris Middleton was 1 for 7 from 3, 4 for 13 from the field with 11 points. And uh, Porter had 10 off the bench, but just not a whole lot on the offensive side. For that group, as for the Chicago Bulls, DeRozan won't have as terrible a night as he did 
going six for 25 from the field, still managing 18 points, eight boards, six assists. But after all the talk that he should receive some MVP votes at various points in the season, and what a great move it was for the Bulls to get him, and what a loss it was for the Lakers to not pursue him rather than Westbrook, he had a six for 25 performance. Atrocious. Vucevic attempted 27 shots and hit nine of them, including two for 10 from three. Still managed 24 points and 17 boards, but man, 32% from the field as a team. And that's with Colby White. Old Colby White shooting five for 10 off the bench for 12 points. Of course, you remember the former lottery pick from two years back who has been regulated to the bench with all these incoming free agent acquisitions. Caruso, DeRozan, Vucevic, Lonzo Ball, who will miss the postseason due to injury. But he was one of the few players who posted a positive plus-minus, according to ESPN's metric system. This was just uh, not a fun game to watch. Much like the Mavericks in Utah, this was a muck-it-up defensive game, and neither team shot well combination of good defense and horrible shooting. None of the other games will look like this. And I'd rather not go through it again. But 93-86 was the final for the Bucks. Moving forward, the Bulls have to shoot better and continue to really pressure the Bucks. They had 21 turnovers today to the Bulls' 11 which is just wild. They also shot 65% from the free throw line, which is atrocious. Bulls shot almost 90%, which is right where you want to be. They did a solid job on the boards. They're out-rebounded 53-58. to That was just a horrible performance by the Milwaukee Bucks, and they still managed to win at home. 18% from three for the Bulls. That's just embarrassing and atrocious. The nightcap was the number one seed in the West, the Phoenix Suns, hosting the play-in eight squad, the New Orleans Pelicans, and it was supposed to be a runaway for the Phoenix Suns, the heavy favorite to win the title at this point, and it was 28-16 to after the first quarter, and it was a 25-18 to outscoring in the second quarter, so it looked like, hey, the Suns got this under control, don't you worry, the Pelicans still within shouting distance. But this is under control for the Phoenix Suns. Well, 110-99 was the final. And it took Chris Paul putting up 19 points in the fourth quarter and finishing with 30 to put the game away. But he shot 12 of 16 from the field. And DeAndre Aiden was a great contributor on both ends. He was 10 for 15 from the field, 21 points and 9 boards. Mikel Bridges, 4 for 9 from the field, 11 points. Devin Booker, 8 for 19, 25 points. The Suns shot 53, 35, and 76 from the field. Pelicans, 38, 39, and 67. Now, the Pelicans down by about 20 points at half. You can't really go by that in the NBA, of course, especially in the playoffs, and especially when the Pelicans have guys that can score, Brandon Ingram and McCollum, as we discussed earlier. I think Willie Green's been an excellent coach and had him fired up at half. They outscored the Suns by 11. 
and did a great job executing on the offensive end and kind of giving the Suns some problems. So just a great job by the Pelicans coming out. And this team will be surrounded by Zion News. They won't win the first round. They're not. They're just not going to beat the Suns. The Suns play inside, outside, defense, offense, score at all three levels, multiple scores, true rim protector. McGee was solid as well, JaVel McGee, seven points in 14 minutes. He had some free throws, three for four, and a few boards. And he was a key piece behind DeAndre Aiden. If he were to get in foul trouble in the playoffs, they didn't have anyone to back him up. And that was a key piece for the Suns. So the Pelicans could be friskier in the first round. Then first glance, it could be a tough five games for the Suns. I don't see it going further than that, but it could certainly be more entertaining than I originally thought. So my playoff bracket looks like this. I have the Phoenix Suns over the Pelicans in five in the first round of the 1-8 matchup. I have the Utah Jazz over the Dallas Mavericks in seven games. Although I'm starting to regret that now. I filled this out just prior to this weekend and the first games being played. That would give me Phoenix and Utah in the semifinals. Yeah, the bottom half of that bracket, I'd have the Golden State Warriors and the Denver Nuggets. I have the Warriors advancing in six. Nuggets, especially at home and mile high, have the opportunity in that arena and with that crowd and with Jokic, one of the best players in the game, to certainly gain some momentum and win a game or two. Hopefully two to keep it interesting force the Warriors to figure some things out in round one. So I've got the Golden State Warriors in six, and they'll be advancing to play the Minnesota Timberwolves. And that is not going to be a popular pick. A lot of folks have the Memphis Grizzlies possibly making the finals. And I would have picked them not too long ago. But watching the play-in game and seeing the matchups, I actually like them more than the Grizzlies. And that's going to be my upset pick. I wasn't even sure if I like them more than the Warriors because I like Jordan Poole and what he's able to offer from a shooting perspective quite a bit. The size for the Warriors does concern me. So that'll give me the three-seed Golden State Warriors and the seven-seed Minnesota Timberwolves in the bottom half of that. And the first game sure makes me look a lot better. But of course, game ones don't always mean a whole lot. We'll see a team win four straight after that and uh, push the game one winner right out. So number one, Phoenix Suns, number five, Utah Jazz. And I have the Phoenix Suns wiping out the Jazz in five games. I think Phoenix will take Gobert right out of the game and Donovan Mitchell right out of the game. And I, there's just issues with the Utah Jazz. And it's a, a bigger conversation, but moving forward, if Utah keeps Donovan Mitchell and trades Gobert and gets rid of Snyder, what will they look like going forward? What impact will Gobert have on another team? What will Snyder do as a coach of another squad, assuming those types of things happen? A lot of speculation. It's just all these 
good pieces together here just have not been working. And I'll have them playing the Golden State Warriors in six games over the Minnesota Timberwolves in the Western Conference Finals. And again, I hope the Timberwolves hope the Timberwolves really show up as a young group. Grizzlies or Timberwolves, I have no stake in either one. I just like all the playmakers involved in that series. I think they're both in a great position moving forward. So regardless of what happens this season, I don't think either one's going to win a championship. And the loser, it's going to be disappointing to go out in the first round. But I do have the Warriors advancing. Again, I'm a little concerned about... I think they have the pieces to throw at Carl Anthony Towns to disrupt him. And the, his, his foul troubles, a little bit of a concern. Anthony Edwards could be a real problem, especially if he gets going in six or seven games against the Memphis Grizzlies and really gains that confidence, although he just exudes confidence. Not arrogance, but confidence if you've ever seen his press conferences. He is excellent and hilarious to listen to, just a great young guy. But I think the Warriors will be able to kind of harass them on the offensive end. I just hope that they're able to kind of deal with Patrick Beverly and uh, kind of the defensive pieces where Carl Anthony Towns and his ability, if he's paying attention to kind of disrupt shooters, will he cause problems on the perimeter if he switches out? I don't know. But I trust the Warriors to get it done in six against the younger Timberwolves team. That'd give me number one seed Phoenix, number three seed Golden State in the Western Conference Finals. And I'm going to go Phoenix in six. They have some size. They have a little depth. They have the ability to shoot. I just like the roster all the way around. I'm going Phoenix in six. And again, you can nitpick a lot of pieces of the Warriors roster. Draymond Green struggles struggles to shoot. Jordan Poole is a young guy, and I hate to bring the youth up because sometimes it's completely irrelevant. But can he stay consistent and even keel in high-pressure environments when he has to knock down shots? Can Steph Curry stay healthy? Can Clay Thompson still hit big shots? It's great when he puts up 30 points on 50% shooting, but can he hit them when it really matters still? And what about Andrew Wiggins? Yes, he's here, and it's great. But he has not been efficient for a very long time, and he hasn't been in the playoffs either, ever. So you can nitpick a lot of Warriors pieces. I I like the Phoenix Suns to make it to the finals. In the East, I'm going with the Miami Heat, no surprise, over the Atlanta Hawks in the 1-8 matchup in five. Hard to pick a sweep. Hard to pick a shooter to just go out in four straight games like Trey Young. Still like a lot of the young pieces that the Atlanta Hawks can kind of move around. And the Miami Heat are offensively challenged themselves. So if you're able to free up some space for Trey Young, for some of those other pieces, you can get things going for the Atlanta Hawks. In the 4-5 in the East, I have Philadelphia in 5. Toronto would have been a popular pick by the Talking Heads prior to the tournament, prior to the playoffs. I just 
like Joel Embiid. I like what this team can do with Joel Embiid. That's basically it. <laughs> I like the young pieces of Toronto. I like what they've done. I like that CL uh, Pascal has been reborn after a dumpster fire last season. Scotty Barnes has been excellent. This is mostly James Harden hopefully isn't a corpse that he's been towards the end of this last uh, back half of the season and that Joel Embiid performs like the top three MVP vote getter that he is possible MVP. You shouldn't have the number one player in the series and the guy with the second highest ceiling in James Harden and not be able to get out of the first round. Maybe I should have gone a little bit longer in the series. Definitely should have gone longer in the series, but I'm going to go Philadelphia over Toronto. And that's starting to look good right now. In the 3-6 hole, I'm going Milwaukee over Chicago in five as well. So that's three pretty dull series that I am expecting. Chicago, of course, brought in all these pieces over the past year and a half to make this team more exciting. And we've had injuries and we've had a lull in the back half of the season. Things just aren't quite where they need to be right now. Ball is out, but things just aren't quite coming together for this team. In Milwaukee, with Giannis Antetokounmpo, is not an elite powerhouse. Some of these teams have the surrounding cast that could take a nap. I think Philadelphia is in danger of that. Milwaukee, obviously in game one, is in the same boat. But I think the Bucks. I was hoping they just flip the switch and, uh, you know, kind of make a run here as much as I like to see competitive series. But that was not the case. Still, they won. They're up one nothing, And uh, I have them in five. Maybe I should have pushed that to six, but Milwaukee in five. And finally, I took Boston in seven over Brooklyn. We knew there was a clear divide here between the top five teams here in the East with Miami. Philadelphia, Milwaukee, Boston, and Brooklyn being the top squads, even with the depth that the East offered. But I'm going Brooklyn losing in 7-2 Boston, thanks to the defensive rebirth that the Celtics have had since the All-Star game. It is astounding to see. Just astounding to see. And, uh... Yeah, so we'll get there in a minute. My finals. So I'm going to have Boston over Brooklyn in seven. As much as I hate to say Kyrie and Kevin Durant go. And I really do, because if you don't recall, they missed a season due to injury when they first re-signed with Brooklyn. So it's going to be yet another missed opportunity to see either of these guys in the finals. Miami in Philadelphia in round two. I'm going with Miami in seven. Although for two top-level teams, this could be very much a defensive chess match. You're you're obviously not going to see a high-powered Joel Embiid, but you're not going to see a high-powered I don't think perimeter player, a high-powered shooting performance necessarily from either of these teams. It's going to be defense. It's going to be aggressive with Joel and Jimmy Butler and Bam getting involved, uh, as though he's not known as, as much of an aggressive guy, but uh, certainly with Joel getting involved. I think this will be a gritty, gritty series. 
I'm going to go with Miami and Spolstra in seven over Doc Rivers and Joel Embiid and James Harden. Uh, But I think that will be an excellent, excellent series. And I'm going to go with Boston in seven over Milwaukee as well. I think they have the tools to frustrate Giannis Antetokounmpo and to kind of mute the rest of his squadron into the background. And boy, is that starting to look good after game one and the no-show that a lot of his team really had. If Robert Williams, Time Lord, is back by then, that will be excellent. Uh, That'll be a great series as well, so I'm really excited for that. So that will give me Miami and Boston in the semi or yeah semifinals there in the Eastern Conference Finals, excuse me. And I'm going to go Boston in six, just like I went Phoenix over Golden State in six. Again, Robert Williams should definitely be back by then, hopefully cleared up, ready to go, healthy, multiple defensive players in the interior and perimeter. I'm going to have better scoring options than Miami, and i just like the Celtics to win. That gives me Phoenix and Boston in the finals, two great defensive squads, two squads with a little bit of youth, two squads with some veterans, good old Chris Paul and Al Horford. And I'm going to go Phoenix in seven, simply because I hope it goes seven, and that's what I'm going to roll with here. Phoenix over Boston, and uh, just hoping for for great series here. Again, top watches, I think, are Boston and Brooklyn Nets. After that, I got Memphis and Minnesota. I hope to see Luka back for the Dallas series, Dallas and the Utah Jazz. Pelicans could keep things interesting in the Phoenix series. Maybe Denver and, uh, and Golden State gets a little interesting. Chicago, Milwaukee, I think Milwaukee wakes up and and beats the life out of them. Or they don't, and they kind of sludge through, and it's a terrible series. I think Miami ultimately turns the lights out in Atlanta. And I think uh, Philadelphia is able to, unfortunately, take down our neighbors in the north. Although that could uh, stay interesting as well. But Embiid might be too much. So we'll see. Very excited moving forward. I want to do just a few minutes on the USFL, which kicked off this Easter weekend. It was first announced June 3rd of 2021, so less than a year ago. It was sprung on us that we would be expecting it spring of 2022. We have four squads, a North and a South. The New Jersey Generals, the Michigan Panthers, the Philadelphia Stars, and the Pittsburgh Maulers, all in the north, and the Birmingham Stallions, the Houston Gamblers, the New Orleans Breakers, and the Tampa Bay Bandits down in the south. The top two teams from each division will make the playoff, so we'll have four squads in the playoff, in other words. Altogether, teams will play a total of 10 games. We have a 10-week season. So, of course, this will get a little redundant. Games will be on FS1, Fox, USA Network, Peacock Network. And it's a uh, joint streaming 
between the two major networks, NBC and Fox. This inaugural season will not be played in any of those these locations. It will be played in Birmingham, Alabama, the entire season, all the games, to help with expenses. But the playoff games and championship will be played in Canton, Ohio, in the Hall of Fame Stadium. The draft was February 22nd and 23rd. It started when they drafted the quarterbacks, quarterback-only draft, and then moved to the rest of the position groups. 280 players were picked, and 80 more were added through supplemental drafts, I believe. First overall pick was Shea Patterson to the Michigan Panthers, the former Michigan QB. And the debut game on Friday was both broadcast by Fox and NBC, the first game since Super Bowl I in 1967. So they're really pushing this league. And they'd really like it to be a feeder system in combination with the NFL, much like the G League. However, much like the problem the NBA has, the G League isn't really watched. And that's problematic. Now, we had one game on Saturday. We were supposed to have three games on Sunday, but one will be airing tonight on Monday because weather already pushed one game. And with a triple header on Easter scheduled in the same stadium, a game was ultimately bumped after delays to the very first game of the afternoon. Now, I watched the first game and bits and pieces of a couple other on Sunday. And it wasn't terribly played football. Both teams scored on their opening possession. We might have some decent gameplay, which is important to the product, but it's certainly not the most important thing. Actually, I'd argue that getting fans in those respective cities to care about the team might be the most important aspect. You want your local markets and your local TV markets to care. But this product immediately went national. It wants everybody to care about these teams with regionally specific names, but kind of C-list players that were clearly available on a national scale, which is very, very difficult. We did have a heck of a lot of turnovers and batted balls and plays throughout the Houston Gamblers-Michigan Panthers games. Of course, it's my home state Michigan Panthers that led all teams in turnovers up to this point. And it'll take time for these teams to kind of gel, but we have to care about the players, about the product, about the gameplay, about the region that they're from. We're not really doing any of that. It was great to watch the broadcast and have Joel Klatt on. Jason Garrett was on. And we have the nice camera views right up and close to the players and on the sideline. Even a cameraman on the field during kickoff, which is not a place I'd like to be. We also have chatter from the referees and the coaches and the players' huddles, which is Kind of fun to hear, but also I'm not sure when all the parties know that that is happening, that we get the best representation of what's going on. 
because you have to be mindful of that if you're one of those respective groups. So I'm not sure if that's necessary, if it means we get a better product. As far as on-field play, we don't want a 7-on-7 scrimmage. We want real offense and real defense, but not in the form of terrible turnovers and offense is not executing. We want real defensive plays, diagnosing a play, blowing it up. Real offenses, diagnosing defenses, moving the ball down the field. Maybe a casual fan can't recognize that. But if you want casual fans, again, put your players out in local communities where those cities will be playing. Put a face out there and make them appealing to the folks you want supporting them. I don't know how this is going to work on a national level. And I don't know how the XFL is going to try to do this again next year with a different league. Surely they're watching the USFL with a, both eyes wide open. They can't even promote players yet because they don't know who they'll be drafting. They don't know who won't make it out of this league that will be available, who will be cut out of the actual NFL, who will be available out of the Canadian Football League, and who will not make it out of college and be available for other activities such as the XFL. So I think part of the problem in promoting a new league is you don't have any players to promote. And if you're playing in an isolated region, you don't have a region to promote to. That's a serious issue. Yeah, it's something that they will uh, have to troubleshoot going forward should any of these leagues hope to succeed. The G League is budgeted in to NBA money and partially funded due to that and is actually used as a feeder system. If NFL teams wanted the USFL to really be a part of what they're doing, they would have to work in the practice squad players, I think, as some sort of the roster. And I don't think that's terrible at all. The Michigan Panthers, for example, could serve as a feeder for the Detroit Lions and the Chicago Bears, for example. Whether it's actual practice squad players or a slightly extended practice squad group. Certainly the NBA keeps 13 active players on the roster, but you have two more as well that are inactive. So you actually have a 15-guy team in addition to being able to send guys to the G League. So the NFL could do something similar. Have your 53-man roster, your 7-man practice squad, I believe it is, and then have 5 or 6 guys, whatever allotment, for additional practice squad players that could actually be assigned to the USFL affiliate. That could certainly be a possibility. And it could be young guys as well, guys of a younger or lesser tenure in the league, which is the same with the NBA. And if you didn't want it to be teams of the same division, the Michigan Panthers could be assigned teams from the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Detroit Lions, per se. And it could be kind of worked out that way and run congruent or in some capacity with the NFL. I'm just not sure how a spring variation works at all. It can still be used as a test ground for new rules, 
which the USFL does have different rules, a different extra point rule. You can try for an extra point field goal. We can go for two points from the two yard line or three points from the 10 yard line. So slight variation there. There's also a onside kick variation where rather than trying an onside kick, you can try a fourth and 12 play from your 33 yard line. And if you convert, you get to keep the ball from where you convert. Otherwise, the defense gets the ball from wherever the play is completed. So that's the alternative to an onside kick. There's an option for two forward passes behind the line of scrimmage to add a wrinkle to offenses. And there's also a variation in overtime. Not quite similar to what college has gone to, but a play on that where each team has three shots from the two-yard line to score. Each team has three shots at it, and each score is worth two points. And whoever has the most points out of three chais at two points per conversion wins the game. Or you keep going until someone has more points than the other, and it's sudden death. So it's just weird. So you may score and get two points, and the other person may not. But you still each have two more shots at it. And then whoever has the most points at the end wins the thing. So very strange. And seems like it needs to be cleaned up. But regardless, a few different rule wrinkles and something that could be played with going forward and as a testing ground for the NFL. But even the social media behind a lot of this is not terribly exciting. I don't think the website that I'm pulling a lot of information is not terribly exciting. And, you know, the broadcast was was fine. There's no one in the stands, especially on the Easter double header. The rain delay was probably, thunderstorm delay was probably part of the problem. There was a decent showing on opening night. But again, only Birmingham, Alabama folks, because that's the only place the games are being played. And I think they need to do a better job of doing kind of a player profile. They talk a lot about, from time to time, the coaches, where they are, but we need more graphics. On social media, we need player profiles. On the website, we need player profiles. And where the pieces fit together. Have these players played together from somewhere before? Maybe ties to the community, the cities they're going to be playing in, should this league survive. And I just think it's a very poor job from a social media standpoint, from a identifiable characteristic standpoint. And I just don't know why anyone can't figure it out. Because right now this looks exactly like the previous leagues that we've had. The Alliance, the Arena, which went for quite a while, might actually still be going on, but nobody hears about it. And that actually has a a different fun premise, not necessarily supposed to be a feeder, so that could get a little more push as a fun kind of a football alternative or variation on football if it was properly promoted. And the old XFL. So we'll see going forward 
none of these really have a chance. None of these other leagues really have a chance until they can kind of break through and figure out some kind of promotion to make you care. And it's there's nothing to show that right now. One league that seems to be doing okay is the fan-controlled football league. It streams on Twitch and Fubo TV and Peacock. The main team right now, one of the top teams right now, the Zappers, with Johnny Menzel, Josh Gordon, and Terrell Owens, who scored a touchdown recently. That's going viral, and that's a group that's doing it right. Just a small blip on the radar. They only play four or five games. But all decisions in the league are controlled by the fan and plays are voted on. And it's just a fun variation of football. It's actually a completely different experience than these kind of leagues. But it's promoted in a proper way. And although it is completely fan controlled, I actually just realized that the roster that I gave out, it's a weekly roster draft. So Johnny Menzel and Terrell Owens may not be in the same team this upcoming week. But anyways, they promote it very heavily the exact way it should be. And I don't see why some of these leagues can't take at least notes from a product that knows its audience and what it's doing. A lot of professional sports have found a new way with gambling. And prior to that, fantasy sports, especially football, that seems like it should be on the docket. At the kickoff of the inaugural game, they had the spread and the money line. So perhaps a moving indicator of what is happening on the field and how that affects the spread or money line or over-under would be a vested interest in expanding the audience for this game. Maybe a fantasy aspect, but again, you would have to know your damn players to put them on a fantasy team. So a lot of room for development here. And they'll have to if they want to survive. Thanks for checking in. It's Michael with no E, Welch like an OG. I'll catch you up on some NBA later this week. All my blessings, all my blessings. All my blessings, 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 all my blessings. I need my blessings every penny, daily counting every single one. I'm seeing plenty. Level up and watch that beat turn into a.